We're now going to read uh, from the Bible, and we're looking at uh, Revelation chapter 1, from verse 9 to verse 18. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum and to Thyatira, and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining at full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Jeremy, and uh, thanks for tuning in from home, and thanks for being here in the building. It's great to actually be able to see faces as we interact with God's Word. And, uh, and I'm really looking forward to kicking off this series called Thrive. As Jacob mentioned before, the reason we're doing this is that the year that we've had has probably left many people in a state of, I guess, feeling somewhat apathetic or passive or just worn down. And so my hope is that, uh, that as we dig into God's Word, that it would enliven our souls. And the one that we're opening with uh, is apathy. The struggle that it is to feel bored, to just feel a lack of desire generally. And in thinking about this, to kind of get us thinking about it more broadly, I want to share with you a weird little story that was written, it was published in 1853, written by Herman Melville, who is famous for writing Moby Dick, but he published this very short, odd story uh, in a newspaper. It's set in Wall Street, and the narrator is a lawyer who never tells you their name. And basically, he has a, a reasonably successful business, and he has three employees named Turkey, Nippers, and Ginger Nut. I don't know if everyone was named that back in the day or if that was weird then too, but you can do what you want with that. But his business kind of keeps expanding, and, uh, and he employs an extra shrivener, which I had to look up, is a, a legal copyist, because then you couldn't just print copies. People literally had to write out hundreds of pages by hand, and it had to be absolutely exact. So it was, an, it was an arduous job. But he employs this guy called Bartleby. And the whole story is called Bartleby the Shrivener. And he employs Bartleby. And initially, he seems like a really great worker. In fact, he writes that as if long famished for something to copy, he seemed to gorge himself on my documents. He's just copying and copying and copying. But one day, the lawyer asks him to come and check some of his copy with, copies with the other Shriveners. And he simply says, I prefer not to. The lawyer's kind of taken aback by that, realizing that, oh, well, I employ you. You're really here to do what I say, aren't you? But Bartleby doesn't seem too phased by it, and he kind of just lets it go. 
But as time goes on, he asks him more and more requests, and if it involves anything other than the work that he is doing, he simply replies, I'd prefer not to. It gets worse and worse, and he seems to be refusing more and more tasks, but he keeps him employed because he still copies things out, and he's the first one there and the last one to leave. But one day, the lawyer is on his way to church and decides to go by his office, and when he gets there, he goes to put his key in the lock, and he can't get in because there's a key in the other side of the lock inside the office. He realizes at that point that Bartleby is just standing there. He can kind of see his frame. And he asks him to open the door, to which Bartleby replies, I'd prefer not to. Eventually, hours later, he actually gets into the office and realizes that Bartleby doesn't even leave the office. He stays in there the whole time. He can't even be bothered leaving the office. Eventually, it gets worse. Sometimes Bartleby will just stand there for minutes on end, staring into nothing. He refuses more and more tasks simply by saying, I'd prefer not to. It's infuriating to read as you wish this lawyer would just do something about it. And he's so annoyed by the passivity and the apathy of Bartleby who just says, I'd prefer not to. And eventually, he decides that he has to fire him. So he tells him, you're done, you're finished here, here's your kind of severance, and I need you to leave the office. And of course, Bartleby replies, I'd prefer not to. And so he just stands there and becomes this like office ornament. And eventually, his clients are coming in and are weirded out by this guy who just stands there and does nothing all day. And the lawyer is so weak that he ends up moving his entire office down the road just to avoid getting Bartleby to leave. Eventually, the landlord of that place tries to get rid of him. He says, I'd prefer not to. He has him arrested, and he goes to this place called the Tombs, which was a holding cell, which I think is still there in New York today. And when Bartleby is offered food, he simply replies, I'd prefer not to eat. And the story finishes by him dying of apathy. Now, you might think, why would you start a series called Thrive with a story as depressing as that? But I think... It's a modern fairy tale in some way. It's a story of how modern life can grind people down to the point where you just feel like, I just can't be bothered. We find out at the end of the story that Bartleby's former job was to work in the dead letter office where they'd receive letters that were intended with love and affection to people that ended up never getting to their destination, money that never ended up helping anyone, rings that were meant for a romantic interest that never made it there, all thrown into the fire, and it left him feeling with just a sense of like, what's the point of anything? And modern life can kind of do that. In fact, I think that in some ways we can all be a little bit Bartleby, can't we? The sense of just, I just can't be bothered. We've all got into that state where you are, feel so kind of apathetic that you don't even do the things that would be for your own good. Like you've been watching TV late at night and you're absolutely perishing, but you just can't be bothered going to sleep. Or it can be other things. You're like, I probably should do a budget, but I can't be bothered. I should probably go to the dentist, but I I really can't be bothered. I should probably get a different job. I should probably do something about my health. I just can't be bothered. I should do something about my marriage. I should do something about my kids' behavior. I just, I can't be bothered. I should do something about my doubts or about my bitterness, but in the end, I just can't be bothered. And apathy, when it really takes hold of a life, can be absolutely crushing, can't it? Dorothy Sayers, a woman who had faith in God and was a a profound writer, said this, Apathy is the sin that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, 
enjoys nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and remains alive only because there is nothing for which it would die. Apathy is just the sense of nothing. The word literally means apathy, no feeling, where you just feel ugh about everything. It's a lack of desire or passion, and God has not designed us to thrive in apathy. We were made to have strong desires and passions like Him. And even if you are not convinced that there's a designer of the universe, no one has to tell you that apathy is not a pleasant state for the soul to be in. See, I think this last passage of time, as isolation and restrictions have set in, has probably left a lot of people just feeling apathetic. A little bit like Bartleby in the story, working in the dead letter office. Just like, what's the point? You save up, but then something like this happens and you lose your money anyway. You work hard, but then your job's gone. You try hard in relationships, but then things just get locked down. What's the point? It can leave people just feeling apathetic. And I think in our culture, when we start to feel like I'm feeling nothing, we want to do things that are going to make us feel something. The main response that we have to apathy is, I want to do things that are going to just make me feel something, like I'm actually alive. And we tend to do this in two ways. And the first is in this. It can be in small ways. We just do things to make us feel something. We get out our phones and we just scroll, looking for something that will give us some kind of a hit, that will make us just feel alive. Maybe we shop or we buy new things because you get something and the package arrives and you actually feel something rather than nothing. We buy food and try new things to get a kind of a buzz, new music, new shows, We spend money on new experiences. We just want to get something new so that we will feel something rather than nothing. But oftentimes, it leaves us back in the state where we were. We consume and we consume. In fact, consumption has gone up during COVID. But when small things don't work, we try and think, well, maybe maybe a really big change will give me a big new feeling that will really change things significantly. So we, we renovate. We move suburb or house or state or even country. We change jobs, we change career, we retrain, we travel, we change our relationships, we let go of one relationship and start a new one in the hope that this might be the thing that makes me just feel something rather than nothing. But ultimately, we often end up back at that same point. G.K. Chesterton once said, weariness doesn't come from weariness of pain, but weariness of pleasure. That is a Western feeling. We have so much stuff and we consume and we consume and we try all these new things and then we end up still at the, back, at the same stage just feeling weary. So then sometimes we try something even bigger. There's a phrase that used to go around which is better barbarism than boredom. That is, if something small won't make me feel something, maybe I'll do something big and dangerous. Adrenaline sports are something that has only really shown up in the last sort of 50 or 80 years in a culture that is just finding itself apathetic and bored. I want to do something that's going to make me feel alive. One big wave surfer says that the aim is to get as close to death as possible and then just narrowly escape. We do things that are crazy, risky, high-impact drugs, affairs, risky sex, adrenaline sports, fights, anything to just make us feel alive. I remember when I was in high school, there was a, a kind of a, an abandoned uh, government building behind our school that the school had bought, 
but they, didn't have any, they weren't doing anything with it at the time. It was a waiting development. And so it was basically just an, an empty space. And in there, there were a few old cars that I have no idea how they ended up there, but that's where they were, and they were just sort of burned out old wrecks. And one day, uh, one of our, our friends came to school with a firecracker the size of a small child's head. And I don't know where he got it. I do know where he got it from. It was somewhere in Canberra. I don't know specifically where it was. I don't know if you can do that anymore. But everyone thought it would be a great idea during lunchtime, because lunchtimes were filled with boredom and just the sameness and whatever, we thought, wouldn't it be a great idea to duck out through the fence into that property and set this thing off? And so his idea was to light it and put it inside one of the cars. And so he got his matches out, lit it up, threw it in, and everyone take, took a few steps back, and the thing just went boom. It was, it was so massive. It was like you could see the air. It, like People's clothes were kind of shaking from it. The windows of the car completely blew out. So I don't know where he got this, like minor weapon from it was a sort of like military grade whatever but after it happened everybody realized that we just had a little bit of a brush with death that actually we could have been seriously harmed or if not worse and and the strange thing was the response was everyone started laughing and it was this weird nervous laughter of like oh my gosh we just got away with something really stupid but oftentimes People will do things, and it's not just teenagers, will do things risky to almost have some kind of a brush with death just to, for some moment, just feel alive. We're looking for something that will make us feel awake rather than just everything's the same, the apathy that sets in. We're looking for something that will make the ordinary extraordinary so we don't just consume and consume and consume. We're looking for some kind of a brush with death to make us feel alive and grateful for life. What we are looking for is awe. Awe is a mixture of fear and wonder. We're looking for something so good that would give us a sense of wonder mixed with fear. The sense that you're at once small and insignificant and at the same time vitally significant. The sense that I've seen something that is actually incredible. The raw power of a volcano or the raging sea gives us a kind of a glimpse into what we're looking for. We want something that's going to make us feel very much alive. Ravi Zacharias, the Chennai-born philosopher and author, writes, Awe is that possession of the mind that enchants the emotions while never surrendering reason. It sees in the ordinary the extraordinary. or interprets life through the eyes of eternity while enjoying the moment, but never lets the momentary the momentary vision exhaust the eternal. What we want is some kind of lasting sense of awe. Something that's going to make us say, wow, instead of meh. Something that will blow us away. And so that brings us to the reading that Jacob read out to us just before. John was a follower of Jesus. And he was a young man with a brother who both decided to leave everything and to follow Jesus. And we're told uh, in this passage, in Revelation, a, a, a book written by John, that he was exiled on the island of Patmos because of the word of God, meaning because he followed Jesus, he had been put on an island and basically imprisoned there. So if there was ever a place when boredom and apathy were going to set in, exile is the place. But while he's there, he has an encounter with the living God and he writes it down for us in God's word, the Bible, so that we will see what God would have us see. Look what it says in Revelation 1, 9 to 18. He says, I, John, 
your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours are in, in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was one like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, with a sash across his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were bronze, glowing in a fur- like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a double, sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in its brilliance. When I, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. This is an image of Jesus, of God. He's on the island of Pamos, and he has an experience, an encounter with the living God. And what he sees here, he attempts to describe what is in fact indescribable. And you can tell that John's reaching for words because he keeps using metaphor and simile. He keeps saying, it's like this. So it's not exactly what it was, but the best way I can explain it is to say it was like this. You imagine an astronaut trying to explain to people what it's like to be in zero zero gravity. They're going to try and use things common to your experience. It's kind of like when you're floating in water, but a little bit thinner. It's difficult to explain exactly without having experienced it. And John is trying to explain what it's like to encounter the living God, Jesus himself. And so he says this. He says, it was like a son of man dressed in white and gold. He says, it's like a person, but there's something different about him. He is radiating light. He is different to us, entirely other. And he says, it's like someone who is completely unapproachable, someone who is so pure and so different it's like he was dressed in light. More than that, he goes on to say that he's powerful. He says it's like his feet were like burnished bronze, like metal, like steel. He is powerful and unshakable and unmovable. He says his voice was like rushing waters. It was authoritative. He doesn't speak like we do. He's not easy to ignore like we are. He says in his hand he held seven stars. He is powerful and controls creation. This is the living God. He has authority over everything. Out of his mouth, a sword. That is, when he makes judgments, they stand simply because he says them. His face was like the sun. It was like peering into the sun. It was too pure to look at. Unbearably pure and holy. This is a God who is awe-inspiring. And how does John respond to this God? I don't know if you noticed what happened there. When he encounters God, he says, I fell down on my face like I was dead. He says it is dangerous to encounter God. Why? Because the Bible tells us that we are separated from our God, our Creator, by sin. And God is holy, which means He cannot bear sin, and yet we are sinful. And so John, a sinful person, is before the living God and thinks, Oh my gosh, I'm going to die. The easiest way to explain it maybe is like this. 
Years ago, I had to get an MRI. I'm, I'm sure many people, maybe a few people even in the room here have had one, or you at home have potentially had one. And before you go in, they do ask you to, to fill out a survey where they ask you if you have any, any metal parts that are non-MRI friendly. So if you have any, I guess, screws or whatever would sort of be in your body or fillings or that sort of thing that are not MRI friendly because an MRI is, is magnetic resonance imaging, which means it's a super magnet that they're putting you through. And so if it's going to attract any metal, if you have any metal that, that can be attracted by a magnet and, and you're going to run through a super magnet, that's probably not going to go very well for you. And every time I do it, I know I'm completely safe. I don't have anything in my body that should do it. But the idea that you'd be put through a super magnet and that fillings might start to shake loose from your teeth or things might start to want to pull out of your body is a terrifying image, isn't it? You want to know 100% there is nothing in me that is going to come into contact with this thing. Otherwise, it will be sheer destruction. To come before the living God with even the smallest presence of what he calls sin, is absolutely life-threatening. And John knows this. But did you see what Jesus said to him? He says he puts his hand on him. This terrifying God is emanating light and a sword coming out of his mouth and fire in his eyes. And he says, don't be afraid. He says, don't be afraid. And why? Because he has died and risen again. Jesus says, because I have died for your sin, I've washed you completely clean of sin. There is now no trace of metal to run through the MRI. There is now nothing in you. You can stand before the living God. And so he has this experience of standing before a holy God and yet surviving it. It would be like walking through fire untouched. It would be like it's that mixture of fear and excitement that you'd feel if you were standing on a glass floor 40 floors up where you feel like I should be plummeting and yet I'm very much alive. It's this incredible sense of, wow, he is awestruck, awestruck by his God. It completely blows him away. I think what most of us, no, what all of us are looking for is an encounter with the living God, with a God who is not safe, but who is good, a God who is awe-inspiring, a God who is, it's like a brush with death to meet with him and yet you are very much alive because he has forgiven your sin. A God who knowing him makes the ordinary extraordinary, knowing that it was made by him. A God who can make all things new. But then your question might be, well if this is the God that Christians worship, why is it that they are so often struck by apathy as well? Or even if you're someone who wouldn't describe yourself as religious or spiritual, maybe your question is, well, why don't more people know of this? Well, it is the case, isn't it, that God is not here visibly present with us. He's kept his safe distance, knowing that when he comes back, he will judge the living and the dead. And he's given us time to turn back to him. But God is not now physically present with us. But he has given us two means of encountering him. And that is his word and his world. God has given us, he has not left us grasping in the dark as to what he is like. God has given us his word and his world to understand what he is like. Look at what it says in his word in Psalm 119.18. It says, Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. The psalmist cries out and says, God, when I open the Bible, I don't want to, I don't want to just see dead words. I want to see you. 
I want to see wonderful things, awe, mind-blowing, kind of awe-striking things. I want to see you as you are in your word, just like John did. God gives us his word that we might understand what he is like, and that it may blow us away. But secondly, he gives us his world. Look at what it says in Romans 1.20. It says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that we are without excuse. He says, If you want to know what I'm like, I've given you illustrations, little pictures of it everywhere in the world. Just look around you at what is around you, and you'll see that a God who made this must be incredibly powerful. He says, Consider the sun. The moon, the stars, consider all of creation, the roaring oceans, and consider my power. He says, I've revealed it through my world. God has given us more than enough to understand how great and massive he is. So here's the challenge for you this week. Whether you're a follower of Jesus, whether you aren't, here's the challenge, is to take God's word out into God's world and see if it doesn't absolutely increase your awe of him and to make it even more specific take a section of the bible called job 38 to 40 and we'll post it up after this service if you if you're wondering where to find it but job 38 to 40 a whole section about how god has revealed his supremacy in his creation and take it out into his world this week so go somewhere as as remote as possible maybe all the way up to the Blue Mountains or somewhere where you've got a good view of the ocean or maybe out into the bush, whatever it is for you. Or if you can't get out of town, maybe just go out on a clear night. Set a little, if you've got space for it, one of those little kind of fires that you can set up in a safe way. But but take it out and read that in his creation and see if it doesn't move you to an awe of your creator. Take out his word into his world. And if you're someone who, again, wouldn't describe yourself as religious or spiritual, I I challenge you to take this up and to pray, God, if you are real, as I open your word in your world, show me what you are like. I mean, the question really is, why not? What do you have to lose from actually doing this? I think everybody really ultimately in life is looking for something that would move us to awe. And ultimately, there is nothing that can do this again and again except the God and creator of the world. But if you are a believer, if you are a Christian, and you're just feeling meh about your faith and God, you're like, I could read my Bible, I just can't be bothered. I know all those things, I just can't be bothered. I would challenge you, do something about it. Do something about it. Don't be a Bartleby Christian. Do something about it. God has revealed himself through his word and his world. He is an awe-inspiring God. A God who is beyond comprehension. Understand who He is and be in awe of Him. See, the more time, and I think this is probably what's done. Over the last little while, we've spent more time indoors probably than any other point in our lives. And when we are around things that are built by human hands and we're surrounded by other people, it it sort of builds in us a conspiracy that maybe it is the case that we're the center of the universe that we really are the biggest and most important thing in the universe and that we actually in some way kind of made ourselves. And there's something very humbling about getting out into God's massive creation and thinking, I'm nothing. And it's not a bad feeling, it's a good feeling. 
It's a joy that fills us with wonder and awe. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, that's my challenge to you this week. Do something this week and even post it up to encourage your brother, Christian brothers and sisters to do the same. Whatever it is that you decide to do, do it and let others know what happened. But there is one more thing that we can do. There is one more means that God has given His people to enjoy Him and to be in awe of Him, and it's to sing. And I don't mean to mock everyone here because you can't sing, but for everyone at home, it's great. There is a reason why Christians from the beginning of time, when Jesus set up His church, have always sung. In fact, Ravi Zacharias says this. He says, Of all the religions in the world, there is none with the wealth of music that the Christian faith offers. We sing because His name is wonderful. It's not a weird coincidence that followers of the Christian faith have produced more and a greater variety of music than any other of the major world religions. When you have seen something, you want to say something. We worship an awe-inspiring God. The world will not perish for lack of wonders, but for lack of wonder. God is not lacking in, in, in magnitude. We are lacking in sufficient attention. Let's pray that we would pay attention to an awe-inspiring God. Father God, we, we are sorry that we so often close our eyes to what you have given us to see you as great, as glorious, as wonderful. We don't often open your word looking to encounter the living God who made the heavens and the earth, who holds our very lives in his hands. And so, Father, we pray that by your Spirit you would give us strength and power to be able to see you in your word. And, Father, we pray that you'd give us a desire to look into your world and to see that this world did not make itself, that it has a maker. And everywhere we see your fingerprint and everywhere we see evidence of your power and your magnitude. And Father, we pray that you would wake us from apathy and desirelessness to a deep and abiding love for you and for those around us. And Father, we pray all of this for the sake of your holy name. Amen.